Our passage this morning is Hosea chapter 12. If you have your Bibles, you can open to the prophecy of Hosea chapter 12. And while you're turning there, let me tell you a little bit about where we're headed. We're going to finish Hosea's prophecy, but we're not going to do it over the next couple of weeks. We're going to press the pause button on Hosea after this morning. And starting next Sunday, we'll consider the incarnation of the Savior and we'll slide into some more overtly Christmas themes. But then once... Our festival of the Incarnation is finished and done with. We'll come back to Hosea and we'll pick up the prophecy where we left it. We have two chapters after this chapter this morning and we certainly don't want to skip those. So we'll pick up chapters 13 and 14 after our Christmas celebrations are complete. Young Christians, young theologians, there are two names we're going to talk about this morning. One is the name of a person and one is the name of a place. So listen for both names. We'll explain what each name means. So see if you can hear it. One person, one place, and two new names for you to learn. This is the gospel of the Savior in the prophecy of Hosea. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence and they make a covenant with Assyria And oil is carried to Egypt. The Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will pay him according to his deeds. In the womb he took his brother by the heel and in his manhood he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel and there spoke with us. There God spoke with us. The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. So you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. A merchant in whose hands are false balances, he loves to oppress. Ephraim has said, ah, but I'm rich, I've found wealth for myself. In all my labors, they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. And I will again make you dwell in tents as in the days of the appointed feast. I spoke to the prophets. It was I who multiplied visions. Through the prophets, I gave parables. If there is iniquity in Gilead, they shall surely come to nothing. In Gilgal, they sacrifice bulls. Their altars are also like stone heaps on the furrows of the field. Jacob fled to the land of Aram, and there Israel served for a wife, and for a wife he guarded sheep. By a prophet the Lord brought Israel up from Egypt, and by a prophet he was guarded. Ephraim has given bitter provocation, so his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him. And will repay him for his disgraceful deeds. O Lord Jesus, if our deeds were made known this morning, if there were screens to drop from the ceiling and play out our lives from the last week, it would show disgrace. And the answer to that is the grace of Jesus the Savior. All of our sins are dark and black and shameful. But the purity and the cleansing and the salvation of the Savior is radiant and beautiful 
whole. And we pray that you would convince us again that our sins have been atoned and paid for in the life and death and rising and ascending of Jesus the Savior and that we're to be made new creatures in His grace, new men, new women, new students, new children. And then we ask you by your Spirit and your Gospel, both living within us, to make us these new creations. For all of this, we'll give you thanks. We ask it in the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Amen. Would you be seated? I feel like Hosea 12 could have been written in my house. All the greed and the grabbing and the taking for oneself. I read this passage and the faces of my family flash through these verses. And I hope you had the same sensation. And if you didn't, I don't think you understood the passage. This passage is like every other passage in Hosea. It's full of two things. It's full of correction and it's full of hope. Unfortunately, most of us can't hear the hope because the correction part sticks like a bone in the throat. We just don't have the stomach to be corrected. And we simply don't believe, we don't have the faith to see that correction isn't the destination. Correction was never intended to be a destination. Correction is what delivers us into the arms of hope. But because we don't have the courage or the humility or the gratitude to hear correction, we disqualify ourselves from the greater enjoyment of hope. Now, as the chapter itself plays out, it, it rolls like grainy home movie footage. I have on film one of my daughters after she stole from the countertop the gingerbread house we had made for the holidays, and we caught up with her, cameras rolling, hidden behind a chair in the living room, shoveling handfuls of gingerbread and frosting into her mouth. And what reveals our hearts in the scene is that the gingerbread was hard and the frosting was stale. You know what gingerbread houses are like. They're far more decoration than dessert. But she didn't care. She was working it down by the gulpful. And I stood over her documenting the comedic crime, trying to get a candid shot, trying to coax her to look up at me so I would call out to her, sweetheart, what are you doing? Hoping that she'd turn her pathetic, guilty, frosting smeared face up for me to get a good shot of it. And she ignored me. She refused to look up. She just went on gorging herself with her sin. The truth of that home movie is half the truth in this passage. You have to steal if you're not loved. You will steal if you believe you are not loved. And what's worse, you'll consider what's crusty and caked 
and stale and inedible a delicacy if you believe you are not loved. The passage isn't only home movie footage, it's also a family tree. It's the family tree for Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom too. The kingdom was split in half after the death of Solomon. Solomon's son came to the throne and promised to deal more harshly and heavily handed with the people than even his father had. And so ten tribes took off to the north to create their own kingdom. They go by the nickname of one of those tribes, Ephraim. And two tribes stayed in the south. They go by the name of the larger tribe, Judah. This particular telling of the family tree isn't as extensive as the other passages that chronicle the family history. Passages like Stephen's testimony before heavy stones rained down on his head in Acts chapter 7. Or the genealogies, pick a genealogy. They tell the family story in full. Or the great cloud of witnesses in Hebrews chapter 11. This passage is a family tree that starts and ends with one name, one figure. And yet this, this one person sets forth the whole story. The story starts and ends with Jacob. Now, family trees are tricky things. My kids come home from school and they tell me that their classmates are all descendants of George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and two little girls, one in the fourth grade, one in the second grade, are claiming to be descendants of the Queen of England. And I say to my girls, well, of course they're related to these people. And my children ask, what famous people are we related to? And I say, well, none. And they ask, why not? And I say, well, because we tell the truth. I've thought about getting onto one of these websites like Ancestry.com and then I think better of it. Because I know all that I need to know about my family and I'm not sure I want to know any more. Why stir up what's settled to the bottom in a murky forgetfulness? I know plenty about my family. And we love to make our family trees mythical because to have a good look at the gnarled, crooked stumps we come from is almost too much to bear. I don't know about you, but I don't come from royalty and dignitaries and inventors and captains of industry and the fathers and mothers of democracy. I come from a long line of horse thieves and snake oil salesmen and squatters and con men and harpies and mothers who didn't want their children so they left them on the doorsteps of orphanages and adulterers and pornographers. Oh, so in other words, you look like Jacob. Exactly. Exactly. And while the home movie rolls, there's this chuckling in the background. And God says, Oh, Israel... Oh, Judah, you venerate the name of Jacob as if he was impressive. You have made him legendary. He has Hall of Fame status in your hearts, which means you haven't understood his story at all. 
You call him Jacob the hero, but his real name is Jacob the heel grabber. That's how his name is translated. That's what his name means. One who sneaks up from behind and trips the one ahead of him to take what isn't his. In the womb of his mother, he was swimming in amniotic fluid with his twin. And even there, he jostled to put himself in first place, grabbed his brother by the heel so that his brother couldn't be born first into the honored place in the family before birth. Jacob was thinking only of himself. That's your forefather, Israel and Judah. That's where you come from. Oh, my people, you called Jacob larger than life. That he was Jacob the limper. Whenever I read the story of Jacob, I think of my grandfather who had polio as a boy. And throughout the rest of his life, he had to have one hip replacement after the other. And he walked with a pronounced limp, almost like he had to throw his bad leg out in front of the healthy one. And that's Jacob. Why? Because Jacob tried to live by his own strength. Always trying to run away from reliance upon God's grace. Always trying to maneuver around having to believe and depend upon God as Savior. And so the angel came to him one night and wrestled him. Rolling through the embers of a campfire. Sand in the eyes fattened bloody lip, down into the river, sputtering and gasping for breath. All night they were at it until the angel touched his hip and threw it out of socket. And Jacob can't run anymore. And the comedy of the wrestling match was that Jacob had the nerve to ask the angel to bless him. I won't let you go until you bless me. But that's why the angel jumped him in the first place. Because God had never let him go. And God had only blessed him. And Jacob had only acted and lived as if God hadn't and wouldn't. So Jacob lived his life blessing himself. And that's why the angel took his hip out of joint. He walked crooked for the rest of his life. And he had to remember that he wasn't walking in his own strength, but he had to lean on another. Oh, Israel and Judah, you called Jacob the son of promise. He was the fugitive from promise. Jacob was the point dropper, the message muddler, the misreader of dreams. The last glimpse that we have of Jacob in verses 2 through 6 is this mention of Jacob's encounter with God at Bethel. Bethel is the site where in the northern kingdom the temple has been built. Bethel is the place where people in the northern kingdom go to worship God. But it has this historic significance to it. The backstory is Jacob had gone into his blind father posing as Esau, his older brother. Esau was their father's favorite by far. And so, Jacob, his father, 
Isaac, rather, his father, puts his patriarchal hands on Jacob's head and he says over Jacob the words of divine blessing. Jacob had stolen his brother's birthright and then he ran for his life. And it was a long, hard day of desert running and that night he was exhausted and emotionally spent so he laid his head down on a rock and he slept through a fitful dream And in the dream, he saw a ladder extending from heaven to earth with angels climbing up and down and God himself standing at the top of it. And when Jacob woke up, he named the place Bethel. This is the house of God. That's what the name means. God's been in this place all along and I haven't known it. This is the gate of heaven. And then Jacob says... And, oh God, if you'll go before me and you'll watch over me and all that I experience, I will give you a full tenth of everything I have. Wow. So impressive, Jacob. A full tenth of everything to the God who already has everything. See, Jacob was still bargaining with God. He wasn't submitting. He's missed the point of the dream when he returns to Bethel at the end of his life, limping this time. When he comes back to Bethel a second time, he gets the dream. He understands it now. He doesn't offer anything when he comes to Bethel the second time. He comes as a recipient and he says to his family, clean yourselves, purify yourselves, change your clothes, get rid of your idols, The love of this God we're going to meet. The God who will speak to us here. The love of this God is the only love we need. The point of the dream of the angelic ladder that Jacob had missed brilliantly the first time around was, Jacob, you keep trying to claw your way up to God. And don't you see he's climbing his way down to you? Israel and Judah, your namesake, Jacob, was not a man of faith. He was a man of no faith. He was Jacob the swindler. And so God came to him repeatedly in holy redundancy as the great God of grace. Dear Israel and Judah, you look just like Jacob, your father. And listen to your boasting in verse 8. Ah, I'm rich. I found wealth for myself. I'm self-made. I need nothing from anyone else. And in all my labors, you can find no iniquity or sin in me. You can't make anything stick. Ah, but here's your iniquity. You have the heart of Jacob. You live by his code. You have to steal if you aren't loved. Do you remember saying in certain defiance, when I grow up, I'll be nothing like my parents? You found all the qualities that were lamentable and most hateable in your parents. And you set your heart with a resolute purity not to follow them into those qualities. I see it in my kids every time they look at me. 
It's like they look into me at the cellular level and they can see iridescent genes in double helix shapes swirling before their eyes. The bad genes, the ones they have to kill, the ones they have to outrun. And I'm rooting for them. I really am. And they won't make it. They're doomed. They're doomed to be just like me in the same way I was doomed to be like my parents. And you were doomed to carry the qualities of your parents. We've lived our worst nightmare in our adulthood, haven't we? Everything we were sure we would not follow our parents into, we've become. Israel and Judah and church, you're just like Jacob. You're no different. You're no better. You're a tree of thieves because you believe you're unloved. And then there's verse 6, which changes the whole passage. There's sin and failure in the first part of the chapter, and then there's discipline and correction in the second half of the chapter. But right in the middle is the hope. Right in the middle of the passage is good news. The heart of this passage is good news because the heart of God towards sinners is good news. And verse 6 says to us, You, by the help of your God, return. He will help you. He will change your knowledge of Him to change the way you live with Him. He'll show you Himself as He truly is so you can cling to His love and His justice. And He'll prove to your hearts again and again that He is faithful and reliable and loving and generous so that you can wait continually for your God, very unlike Jacob, and you'll never be disappointed. Our story traced through Jacob is a story that's gone wrong from the start and it calls for interjection. The story of God's love was sabotaged by unbelief. And so now it has to be hijacked by grace. And Jacob, the faithless one, has to be replaced. So God now sends Jacob's perfect counter, his contrast, his foil. God sends the faithful one. And Jesus puts himself into a womb. And the miracle of it isn't eternity breaking into time. The miracle of it is Jesus isn't a heel grabber. And that's the gospel of Christmas. There is nothing to grab at if God gives himself to us so fully. And so Jesus grabs at nothing, not even in the desert where Satan tempts him. Jesus has all worlds, holds them together even as a prenatal king, as an unborn king, because Jesus knows there are no riches for him to take. He already has all the riches of his heavenly Father's love. And he comes to give you the same otherworldly birthright that you can't grab for. And that's the place where all of our jealousy and our envy and our rivalry and our conceit and our feeling that we've only gained when others around us have lost 
All of those sins are put to death. Could you really grab more than the Heavenly Father gives? And Jesus walks the dusty roads between Galilee and Jerusalem. But when He walks these roads, He walks them without a limp. No rolling hip for the Christ on the road. Because He knew the truthfulness of God's Word to be so beautiful. It called for one artful response. Obedience. Uh, We're not sure of the Word like that. Even when we believe it, we're not sure of the word like that. We're not sure we can throw the weight of our whole lives onto it. We're not sure at all that it will uphold us and keep us alive. We're unconvinced of the beauty of obedience. In our brokenness, it feels to us more like loss. And even when we do obey the word, we do it from a Jacobean greed. So Jesus, the limpless Savior, gives us the grace of wrestling and limping in repentance. Knocked out of our strength with no moves left. So we have to rely on His. That's what repentance is. And oh, if you're doing it right. If you're doing it right, you should walk with a pronounced heavy limp. And if you're walking around trying to make it appear that you walk straight and upright, ah, you're a dreadful liar. And the ladder from heaven that Jesus built was the unlikeliest staircase of all. No one would ever think to climb it. No one except a Redeemer A simply ridiculous structure made of blood-soaked beams set crosswise. Because clawing our way up has never worked, Jesus climbed down to us with a cross. And Jesus carries us up to heaven by that same cross. There is no hope of forgiveness There is no hope of cleansing. There is no hope of renewal or freedom unless we meet Jesus at His cross. It's not Christianity that insists on a spirituality of the cross. It's Jesus Himself. And why of all things does Jesus insist on a cross? Because that's our family tree replanted. The cross of Jesus is a brilliant interruption that overcomes our past, as terrible as it is. And it brings us into a new present and it holds out to us a future of unimaginable hope. We're not doomed to look like Jacob the swindler. That's what the cross promises us. We are reborn in Jesus to look like Him, the Son, the One who knows and believes and trusts against all things that the Father's love is reliable and worth fighting for and worth clinging to for dear life. But it never has to be stolen and it can't be manipulated. And Jesus will teach us these same things He'll make our heads swim in them and our hearts throb with them. He'll make these things run through our veins by faith, by faith. 
through Jesus. You can't lose what the Father gives except through your own Jacob-sized unbelief. And that's what gives us the whole truth of this passage. If you are loved, you don't have to steal. You can't steal more than love desires to give. If you are loved, there is no need to swindle or con or manipulate. There's only one role for me to play in this story. Mine is the part of the unbelieving, untrusting prostitute. Just like Jacob. Can you believe that Jacob of all people is not the man of faith, but the untrusting wife, just like Gomer, Hosea's wife, just like Israel, just like Judah. You know who's not a prostitute in all of this? Hosea. Of all the people who could truly wonder, does God really love me? It would be Hosea, wouldn't you think? And yet, he doesn't. For some reason, Hosea believes God's love more than he believes anything else. That's what keeps him hoping and praying and praising and persevering and watching out the window for his wife to come home and searching the streets for her. It's what keeps him from living by his own flesh. It all comes down to this. If God is not good and gracious as he claims to be, as he shows himself to be in Jesus, if he isn't any bit of what he says, and maybe someone here this morning wants to make that case, if that's the way you're being drawn, go ahead, make the case. See if you can do it. Is God really good and gracious? If He's not, then we should continue in our prostitution, our selling, our swindling, our bargaining with our affections and our lives and our bodies and our participations and our loyalties as capital. We should just go out and get whatever we can get for ourselves. If God is not good, then the best we can hope for is some functional prostitution, anything to get by, to survive, to get ahead even. But if He is good, if He is gracious every bit as much as He says He is, then our prostitution is a pointless defiance. Really, what need do we have to defy love? And it's something to be repented of is the absolute wrong response to so perfect a love. We should stop living as whores, making our rough, grubby, streetwise way for ourselves. And we should begin living like sons and daughters. The sons and daughters Jesus came to make of us. And by the way, living as sons and daughters does not mean that God will give us everything we want. That He'll give to us all that we desire. What it means is sons and daughters will learn to desire and want what the good and gracious Father wants for them. 
prostitutes move away from the lover and sons and daughters move to the lover. The greatest wounds we inflict on ourselves are wanting things that the loving God does not want for us. And the gospel grace He gives for our healing is the opposite. The gospel grace He gives for the healing of our self-inflicted wounds is the ability to say out loud in faith until we believe it more and more and more. Oh Lord, Your desires embodied in Jesus are more desirable than my own. Can you say that? Your desires are more desirable and greater than the things I desire for myself. I dare you to start saying it this week. One week may turn to two. Two may turn to four. It may exponentially multiply to 52. And that's our single move toward gospel maturity in this passage Watch your wants. Are you wanting His wants more than your own or yours over His? If you can take that single question into your heart, whether you're a disciple or a new believer or a skeptic being pulled to faith or a skeptic who doesn't want anything to do with the faith, if you can ask that question honestly, do I want His desires more than mine or mine over His? That question will tell you if you're turning tricks like Gomer, like Jacob, or if you're believing the good news as good news in Jesus Christ. Are you living in the old, unbelieving tree of knotted ancestry? Or are you living in the tree that's gnarled and crooked in every part But there is this one branch that has grown out of it, a beautiful branch, who makes the whole tree straight. When the Pevensey children walked through the wardrobe into the snowy world of Narnia, they walked into the very heart of the struggle we all have to fight through. And maybe Edmund suffered it more than the others. Edmund was the Judas figure in this little gospel fable, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. On his first trip through the wardrobe, Edmund met the white witch who lured him into her treachery by feeding him Turkish delight. She offered him as much as he could stuff himself with if he would turn his brother and sisters over to her. And Edmund takes the bait. He plans to betray them. What Edmund doesn't know is that Aslan has a throne to seat him on. One of the four thrones at the palace Care Paravel is meant for Edmund. What a trade. A tin of sweets instead of a throne. And the end of the story is Edmund is redeemed. He's atoned as Aslan dies in his place, a traitor. And he's forgiven, and he's reconciled, and he's loved, and he's changed. He's sanctified. And after all this, he still gets the throne. 
But he has to leave his tin of sweeties behind. And now what about you? Will you begin to believe the lion-sized love of the Savior enough to do the same? Enough to leave your candied nothing far behind. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit. Oh, Lord Jesus, we love to believe that the tins of candied nothing we gorge ourselves on are the things that will settle our hearts and satisfy the ache in our souls and finally give to us rest and joy and peace, but none of them ever work. And that's why we invent tin after tin after tin of this stuff and we gulp it down. And we pray instead that you'd pull us away from our likeness to Jacob. How we could be just like him, prevailing against God, thinking to ourselves that it's a virtue when it's not. Just like Jacob, we should simply believe and submit and entrust ourselves to the promise of your grace and see that it's God who prevails for us. Ah, Lord, if we could know your lion-sized love, then maybe we would give ourselves to our familiar and comfortable prostitutions less and less. Uh, teach us the healing words of faith this week. Teach us to say them against all our desires. What you desire is more desirable than the stuff I crave most. Make me a son, make me a daughter, and change my desires to match yours. And then I can stop living like Jacob and like Gomer. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you for putting yourself in a womb and grabbing at nothing. Thank you for walking the road without a limp. And thank you for building the ladder of the cross. Your descent to us and our ascent into glory. And now, Lord Jesus, recreate us and make us the people that we cannot make ourselves and bring us more fully into our birthright as new creations. And for all of these things, we will give you thanks. And we ask it all in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.